So, um, we are in our second week of Advent here, and I, I have had quite a week. I don't know. I don't know what happens around this time of year, but uh, things just start like going like you wouldn't expect them to go. And uh, I don't know, I've had like seven or eight things that would have just, if, if one of them happened in the week, it would have been okay. I was ice climbing on Sunday. I was 100 feet up. I'd like to, I'm not exaggerating, like, let me exaggerate a little bit. I was like 200 feet up on this ice wall and it was, it was complete pitch dark and there was lightning and wolves and it was awful. <laughs> And, um, and I was fighting a wolf off with a sword, and I was on this rope, and my iPhone came out of my pocket. That really happened. And fell. I watched it fall 100 feet and just uh, down into some abyss. So if you've been trying to get a hold of me this week, that's what's happened. I'm sorry. I don't have a phone right now, and I'm kind of in the grieving process. haven't gotten a new one yet. So there's that. But also, I mean, that's, that's, that's kind of... The, the, the lighthearted side of it, but I, I do honestly come to the table this morning, to uh, the altar this morning, to the, to the pulpit this morning with a bit of grief. I'm grieving uh, and for, for a few different reasons uh, right now, and I, I recognize that that puts me at about 65% of my normal uh, functioning capacity, and it's like this season of rejoicing and joy and responsibility and all of that, I'm walking into at 65%. And so uh, I felt the burden of that this week. And I think um, as, as we preach and go into the Holy Family's story, uh, it's a perfect time for me to listen to, to Mary as she uh, prays her Magnificat today, uh, who, who teaches me how to rejoice in the midst of grief. So that's what we're doing today. We're going to we're going to enter into that story, and um, I came across, as I was thinking through all this, I came across this YouTube video called Advent in Two Weeks. Sorry, Advent in Two Minutes. You push play, and you can watch what Advent is, and it was, it was really well done. I really uh, liked it. What, I'm just going to read a little bit of what it said. Advent is the four weeks that come before Christmas, the four Sundays that lead up to Christmas. And usually at churches, they do this thing with this Advent, these candles, where they uh, light the candles and, um, and, and prepare. So every four, every, the four weeks before Christmas is Advent. And we all know about Christmas, right? Christmas is shopping. This is, I'm just quoting from this website. Shopping and planning and buying and baking and parties and dinner and cookies and eggnog and Santa and cards and gifts and decorating and caroling and stressing. It's not Christmas. Christmas is so much different than that. Christmas is more. Christmas is about expectant waiting, hopeful anticipation, and cheerful preparation. I love that. I'm still trying to figure out this year how to get into some cheerful preparation. I haven't, I haven't figured that out yet. That's what Christmas is about. It's, about. it's about God breaking into our lives in all moments, in all places, at all time, commemorating the birth of, birth of Jesus and preparing for his return. So there's joy in waiting as we begin the new year as a church. And the church calendar We've already started the new year. We haven't, got, we haven't gotten there yet in, in the terms of our, our Western culture where we start on January 1st. But the church starts over in Advent. And this is perfect because it helps us to realize that we need a new start. We oftentimes need to push the reset button in our lives. 
And it's so interesting. I mean, of all the ancient people in the world that we remember today, Julius Caesar and Caesar Augustus and uh, all these, you know, you think about all the ancient people who you might know about. Every year, millions of people join their story up with this small peasant family from Israel with Zechariah and Mary and Elizabeth and Joseph and the donkey and Bethlehem. And we align our lives over and over again with this small, poor family. And as we study, we're, we're in this year of studying Jesus at the church, figuring out once again who he is and remembering who he is. And as we study Jesus, we have to remember that this is his family. He came from this family of priests, this poor family of priests, his mom and his dad and his cousins and all of that Jewish culture um, that comes with it. And so if we want to know Jesus, it's a perfect time in Advent to reorient our life around him once again. And so we take up, we take up their story, this little family's story every year and we relive it. And, and what happens is, is, and you ask the question, why? I mean, Christmas is such this, this embedded part of our, our culture, but why do we do it? We do it because we have those deep places of heartache and loneliness and question asking and doubting, and all those places need to be touched. And for good or for worse, Christmas does it. It touches it. So what is Advent? Advent is something we probably usually do poorly. It's shopping, stressing, planning, and buying. But really, Advent's about expecting and waiting and hoping and praying. And part of my question and part of my hope for the next couple weeks for me and for all of us is how can we turn from the first part, turn the corner into the second part? Because like this website says, if you're sick of Christmas by December 21st, to December 25th, if you're sick of it by December 25th, you haven't done Advent correctly. So here they are. We're on the road as we are every year to Bethlehem with the Holy Family. And here's how we do it well. Here's how we remove the anxiety of the holidays and move into the expectant preparation. We join ourselves in song and story and worship, and we join the road uh, to Bethlehem. And ultimately, we get to this place, and we'll get there on the December 24th. We're not quite there yet, but we're getting there. We're getting to this manger, and we're trying to once again huddle around this manger with these people and this story. We're heading there, and we, what, what we're going to do is we're going to get there, and we're going to recognize just what it does to us, just the transformation and the hope and the joy that can be put into our lives when we huddle around this cradle. So coming weeks, coming, coming attractions the next couple weeks, we're going to get there. But today, today we're still with this Jewish family, this Jewish family, these unlikely bearers of good news, the Zechariah the priest and his wife Elizabeth, who we heard about last week. Here they are, an old couple who, uh, who weren't able to have children. And, and at, the, at, at an unusual point of this couple's life, they, were, they conceived a child. And of course, the child is Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist. And we've been talking about John the Baptist and his importance and to knowing Jesus and, and the healing tradition that he stands in. And so here, here are these, this devout couple, and Elizabeth becomes pregnant as an old woman 
And Zechariah, her, her husband, because of an encounter that he has with the angel, he doesn't believe that it, this prayer, or this long prayer of having a son could be answered. But Gabriel announces that your prayers have been heard and you're going to have a son. And he doesn't believe it. So the angel just closes his mouth for nine months. He's not, he becomes mute, unable to speak. And what Elizabeth does, and we don't know why, the Gospels don't tell us why, or Luke doesn't tell us why, but what she does after she finds out she's pregnant, she goes into kind of seclusion for five months. There's no, no, no person allowed in. Uh, she, she, she is rejoicing. She's filled with so much joy, she isolates herself. That's an interesting thing. I'll, I'll circle back to that in a little bit. So that's what she does. And in a six-month, we're told, that same Angel Gabriel visits this young woman who's related to Elizabeth on the other side of the normal fertility cycles. He visits her and says, the Spirit of God is going to overshadow you and you're going to conceive the heir of David, the king of the universe will be your son. And basically she says, well, how's this going to happen? But then once he explains that the Holy Spirit, God's very spirit is going to overshadow her, her reaction was completely different than Zechariah, this religious priest. Her response was, let it happen to me as you will. And we hear the echoes of Jesus' own Gethsemane prayer. Not my will, but yours be done. Come through her. Jesus was indeed Mary's son. So it says, the story says that after Mary says this, it says, with haste, she leaves her home for three months and goes and visits Elizabeth to see if this could be true. And that's where we pick up the story today. Um, Elizabeth says, Mary goes into Zechariah's house. Here's, here's Zechariah and a few of his household. Here's Elizabeth and here's Mary. Or maybe it's the other way around. I don't know. Uh, Mary comes into Elizabeth's house, greets her, and then the strangest thing happens, and, and Elizabeth gives testimony to this. She says that the baby, John the Baptist, six months along, Mary's just recently pregnant, Elizabeth six months along, the baby leaps in her womb at the sound of Mary's voice. And Elizabeth goes and sort of sings this song to testify to what happens. And you know what? I'm, I'm just going to take a little moment here to, to do an aside because uh, I don't know, I grew up in the Catholic tradition. I was a, a, a Catholic, um, young Catholic kid, and, um, and I learned to pray the Hail Mary. I don't know how many of you are in the, the, same, the same boat. The rosary and the, and the Hail, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee, blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Hail Mary, full of grace, have mercy on us, now on us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. That's the prayer that I, I learned to pray as a kid and pray through the rosary. And like 90% of that comes straight from this encounter. Um, so we have Hail Mary full of grace. That's Gabriel's announcement to, uh, to, uh, to uh, Mary. Hey, your favored one, full of grace, Luke 128. The Lord is with you. That's what Gabriel says, Luke 128. Blessed are you amongst women. That's Elizabeth's. Here's what Elizabeth said. Mary, blessed are you amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb, Jesus. And then Holy Mary, Mother of God. So anyway, just a little aside to say, where, where, where the Hail Mary kind of 
kind of moves off into, into uh, I think a little, goes sideways a little bit, is that Mary's very own prayer will say, am I missing something? Oh, Molly Mary. Maybe that's what she wants to be called today. Okay. <laughs> we'll just change. Uh, oh, wait. Are you trying to change it right now? Just... Escape, escape. Okay, there we are. Thank you. Holy Mary. <laughs> it's a Christmas miracle. <laughs> Hail Mary, Mother of God. And then the prayer goes on in the Catholic tradition, have mercy on us sinners. And that's actually Mary's prayer about God. He, and we'll get into this. God is merciful. He's, he's, uh, for those who fear him, it's his mercy. So we, we end up in the Catholic tradition having put a little bit of uh, emphasis on, on the mercy of Mary rather than the mercy of God. Anyway, that's a little aside. In case you're curious about uh, that prayer, uh, in the Catholic, most of it comes straight from the, the, the scriptures. Uh, and here we are. Um, with, um, with Elizabeth. So Elizabeth says these things. She says, um, how is it? And the ho- it says, the Holy Spirit came upon her and said, how is it that the mother of my Lord has come to me? And it's an amazing thing for Elizabeth to say, to know that the Lord, her Lord is just being born in Mary's womb. And it's the first, some of the first proclamations of Jesus as the Messiah. So these these women are heroes. Can I say it that way? These women are heroes of the faith. Their hearts are humble enough and open enough to recognize God's working in their midst. And they, um, and they become some of the most chosen people in the, the scriptures for, uh, to, to bear God, to bear God's message into the, into the world. And so what happens is they're, they're recognizing Jesus as king and John leaps for joy uh, in, Mary's, or in Elizabeth's womb. And then what happens John begins leading the whole crew in worship, right? He starts worshiping even before he was born. He's leaping for joy. But then Elizabeth starts to worship. How is it that the mother of my Lord has come to me? And then Mary, she's like going to just sing this song that stretches across ages. This, we call it the Magnificat. That's the Latin word for um, what Mary's about to sing. And what we're going to do for the rest of the time this morning is take some lessons from Mary about joy and about worship. So here's how it goes. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. Surely from now on all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And, and if you have ears to hear, you're, already, you're seeing her influence on Jesus as well. Teach us to pray, our Father in heaven, holy is your name, all right? That's Mary's prayer. Holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, according to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and his descendants. And Mary's song raises all sorts of interesting questions. I mean, how did Mary, a young girl, 
have such insight. How did she know that God was Savior? God hadn't been around doing his saving acts for 500 years. How did she know he was a Savior? How was she formed with such faith and confidence in her to write these words and to, 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 to pen these words? And this last little bit here, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy according to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. How does she love and know Genesis 12 through 32 so well? How, did, how, how was that formed in her? And I'm just, I'm struck by the Jewish tradition in their... Um, in their way of doing festival and telling story, their young people knew from a very young age how good and great and powerful God is, even when we can't see it or perceive it. And I'm just inspired that our young people have that same confidence here at Grassroots and in the church. And how can we, how can we instill in them that sense of God's story and God's love so at such an early age? And every week they're being instilled and inspired by that. But how can you do that in your homes? Among the young people you're around, what can you be doing in, your, in, in, the, in the hours from before school till school starts or school ends until the evening ends, what, what do you spend your time doing? How can you instill the story of God? That's one of the questions I have for us this morning as, as we go through this. But Mary, she knows these things, and she's, um, she's open and humble. And as we, as we enter into some of this, a, a couple of these things stand out to me. Here, here's this phrase at the beginning, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Let's take a moment here to unpack these things. What is it to magnify the Lord? It's kind of a big Christianese or type of word that we don't have. And what does it mean to magnify the Lord? And I think it means something like putting the spotlight upon him. It means being amazed at him. It means taking more of your time and energy and making him bigger making him more in your life than it is. My soul magnifies the Lord. I open my heart up. I open my life up for God, for you to, um, to, uh, to work. It's like it's the difference between cutting someone down to size with criticism. We all know what that's like, right? You want to cut someone down to size if they've hurt you. You want to criticize them. You want to make them smaller or feel smaller. The opposite of that is what we do to God. God, I want to make you bigger, make you seem bigger in my life. So that's magnifying the Lord, becoming, God becoming more significant. God becoming more significant. I think those, these are, are, great, are great questions for us. What does it look like, in this, especially in this time of Christmas and Advent, to have God be more significant in our lives? When I get, we get down to, we'll, we'll get into this. I've got some specific sort of ideas for us this morning. But as we move on, yeah, his, you know, we get to this, like, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. And what he, what he, she goes on to say, for he has done great things for me. This is Mary, okay? God has done great things for me. Think about that. Unpack that. You would think that's what Elizabeth might be saying. I waited my whole life for a child. I waited my whole life to bear a son. And now he's given me one. He's done great things. That's what you would expect out of Elizabeth. But this isn't Elizabeth saying this. This is Mary. Mary whose life is basically ruined. At the beginning of her life, doesn't, have, doesn't get to have a normal courtship process. Doesn't get to have a normal pregnancy. 
is now covered and washed over with shame in the culture she's living in for having a child before she was... God's ruined her life, basically. But that's not how she sees it. That's not how she senses it and experiences it. She recognizes that God has something very important for her to bear God into the world. And she, instead of focusing in on the, the ways that it seems like God has ruined her life, she's able to see, God, you've done great things for me. I think Mary can teach us so much about what true joy is. And we'll get, we'll get into that a little bit more as well. I'm just kind of going down some of these things with Mary here. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. I think um, some of us may have grown up in a tradition or experienced God as someone to cower in front of, like an abusive leader who just wants to cut us down to size. And we think that's what fearing God means. So let me just sort of wash that idea out of your minds and out of our minds this morning and just replace that word with reverence, revere, Revering God. It's knowing his place, knowing how strong he is, knowing how powerful he can, he can be. And we fear him by recognizing his authority and revering him. Uh, it, says, uh, it says in her prayer there that he scatters, scatters the thoughts of the proud. Okay, think about this. So God is at work in the world scattering the thoughts of the proud. So yeah, if we, get, if we get into these places where we're cutting God down to size or we are seeing him smaller than he really is and lifting ourselves up thinking, okay, like the King Herods of the world, I would rather be in charge of my life, in charge of the people around me than letting God be actually in charge. Okay, there's maybe a scattering of the thoughts of your mind happening and, and that can happen because we can get in those places. Um, so fearing him is, is, uh, is recognizing that, that if we lift ourselves up too high, he's going to, in his gentle way, bring us, bring us back down to our own size. He's not cutting us down when he does that, though. That's the thing. He's bringing us back to the, how we should operate, how we should be, how we should uh, work in this world. And guess what? If our thoughts go proud and we, and we just run with them, our lives are going to be destroyed. Our lives are going to be so ruined by our own, when we don't take control of our own life, and we, when we uh, take uh, power into our own hands. God knows how destructive that is. And so he calms us down. He brings us, he brings us back down, perhaps, is a better way to say it. And uh, mercy, mercy is for those who fear him. So fearing him is revering him. And having a sense that when we're humble, he lifts, up, he lifts us up. He lifts up the lowly and scatters us when we're proud, okay? So fearing him. And one of the, one of the things about fearing God um, is that sometimes the world seems so wrong, so out of sorts, so big and evil and out of our own control. And Jesus teaches us what it is to enter with humility, and Mary teaches us what it is to enter with humility and trust God Trust his justice. He's the one who's going to bring the proud low and lift up the low. He will let your righteousness, as the psalmists say, shine like the dawn. You can, you can trust God with your reputation. That's the point here. That's what Mary is teaching us. So she's remembering his great works. And basically, we end, we end with Mary's faith. This is what Elizabeth says to her, remember? Blessed is she who believed 
that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her by her Lord. Mary is a woman of faith. She is a woman who, when all, everything seemed to be unraveling and ruined for her, she saw something deeper. She saw God at, God at work. So that's Mary's faith. So what does this teach us? I mean, how do we do this in, in actuality? How do we bring this from these lofty scriptural thoughts into our everyday life? Those are the questions I have for us today as, as we leave. And it's kind of magnifying the Lord and leaping for joy are two ways of saying it. So how do we magnify the Lord in our life? How do we make him bigger? And I think one way to do that is, and he tells us this, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul and your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Those two things are joined up. So the point is this, if you want to magnify God and learn to revere him, you have to learn to revere people. It's this, being able to look into the eye of someone and see son or daughter of God. They could be your best friend or your worst enemy, but those eyes of reverence are so important to grow. We live in a world today that's so polarized and pushes people away so far from us and demonizes them if they don't think like us or if they've hurt us or if they're our enemies. Mary is teaching us here. Jesus teaches us to see with eyes of reverence. If you disagree with someone, if they've wounded you, what do you see at the end of the day? Someone who believes something different than you? Someone who messed up a little bit or messed up big? Having eyes of reverence, I'm going to ultimately see a son and daughter of God in every person I meet. And if you walk around and try that for a week, I guarantee you something will happen inside of you that you won't expect. Something will grow. Something like we might call joy might grow. So leaping for joy. John, when he, Jesus comes to him, he leapt for joy even before he was, was born. So what does it mean to have joy in our life? Leaping for joy. I love, I love some of these thoughts. Christian joy, this is an author I was reading last night. Christian joy is rooted in darkness, chaos meaninglessness, and sorrow. So Christian joy is like an attitude of contentment. Like you will feel content. Joy is like the sense of even though the world around me is spinning out of control, I've got a, a rightness, a feeling of rightness about me, a contentment. In Christian joy, you will feel sad. You will feel depressed. Sometimes You will feel anxious. All of those things are, are part of it. And, the, and the, the point here is this. Christian joy is rooted in darkness, chaos, meaninglessness, and sorrow. Mary's joy, my soul rejoices in God my Savior. Again, she was in a dark place. Let's not mistake, let's mistake that. She was having to, to go to dark places um, in, in her sorrow. And yet she was able to have this at rightness. This joy about her. So, um, yeah, the, the next little thing it says here, don't frown, don't be worried, don't be unhappy. God is letting you discover him. This is what our life is about. Meanwhile, let the days bring you what they will and don't fuss or fret about what you are or what you aren't. Let the days come, the darkness and the light, and don't concern yourself. This is an important teaching, and I just wanted to get into this today because... 
as we think about joy, as we think about the, the, the place of joy, I don't know about you, but going through grief and going through hard times, it's like I'm not even sure I know what joy is in my mind. I, I think sometimes like joy is this feeling of like I want to you know, kick my heels together as I walk down the street with my top hat on and go and buy Christmas bonbons or whatever. I don't know. Like, what's Christmas joy? Christmas joy, Christmas joy is not a shallow, like, happiness that everything's all right in the world and you just got all your presents bought. Christmas joy sits deep inside of our sorrows, deep inside of our pain and our darkness. And it's this feeling like even though the world around me is broken and and, at chaos, I'm resting in the peace of God. That's Mary's joy. That's the joy that Mary is teaching us about. It's like going through life with with clenched fists. Joy is like going through life like this. I'll take what you give me, God, and I'll release what I have no control over. That's joy. That's deep joy. It's, there's an immense sense of relief, friends. There's immense, an immense sense of relief when you take the things that you've gone like this with and giving them over to Jesus, giving them into his hands. And that's when joy can begin. Now, the last thing to say about joy is this. Um, there are two obstacles to, to true joy, to deep-seated joy. One of them is grudge, being grudging. And the other one is guilt. If we walk around with grudges against one another, it'll snuff joy out. If we walk around with a sense of guilt that we've done something or someone's done something to us and we feel guilty about it for whatever reason, um, joy is not going to have find a deep seat in our heart. So how, who, do you, who today do you bear a grudge against? How can you release that grudge? Who, uh, who here feels guilty and holding on to guilt in their life? How can you release that? What do you need to release to God? It's an opportune time this morning to do it. In your heart, releasing grudges and f- asking for forgiveness. Uh, the joy that evades us in Christmas time sometimes is just that far away. It's within our reach if we humble ourselves like Mary, if we humble ourselves and let God bear the burden of grudges and letting God forgive us for what we've done. The last thing to say is rest. There's a deep connection between joy and rest. What what did Elizabeth do when she found out she was pregnant? She took five months by herself. I think her joy, a lot of her joy was based in her just recognizing, you know, I need some time off. What did Mary do when she found out she was pregnant? She left for three months to go live with a cousin. Imagine that. I mean, she, had, she left her responsibilities behind. She left her cares and concerns behind. Now, I'm not saying you guys need to shut your doors for five months or go off to live with your cousin for three months to have joy. But what might your life look like in the coming weeks if you scheduled some real rest? Like some real rest. Like I'm talking about a whole week perhaps without any meetings. Is that possible? 
I'm talking about like an hour where you just stare at the wall or the birds or out, out a window. We need, or or how, how much sleep are you getting right now? We need, human beings need sleep. I think joy and the ability to have joy, especially in the Christmas season, is connected with many of these things and our inability to actually rest. So, I don't know. What does it look like? What could it look like for you in the coming couple weeks to actually find some time to let your heart let down? If you're grieving, to let yourself cry. Find some alone space. Go for a walk, as cold as it might be. I just think that um, there's, there's so much potential in having joy. And I'm, I'm going to keep on talking about this because I think it's so important and so hard. And next week we'll just continue talking about some practicalities of joy. Um, but as, as we end up here today with, with Mary, I love this picture. Just take it in for a minute here. You guys probably get the point. Here's Mary, the mother of God, pregnant consoling Eve, the first woman that was ever created. There's Eve's apple that she has in her hand and the snake that wrapped herself around her leg. And Mary, as the mother of God, bearing the Son of God who will crush the powers of sin and death. Mary in her humility. Mary in her sadness. Mary in her joy. Mary in the power of being a person of faith who follows God with obedience. All the things which have ruined the world and ruined our lives, Jesus is taking on. Jesus is taking on and freeing us, freeing us for true life. And here's his blessed mother who's uh, consoling the first woman. How do you need to be consoled today? How do you need to let go of the things which have destroyed your life? How do you need to let go of the things which promise to destroy your life? These are the Advent questions that result in us actually being able to start again in new life, new breath, new living. I don't know, what, what would this next year look like if you gave yourself over to rest and to joy and to release? That's what we're all asking ourselves in this time. And in the coming weeks, we, um, this is important work. This is essential work. I, I try to, to, to always land on December 25th with a sense of peace and joy. It doesn't always happen. Uh, but now's the time. Now, this week and the next week, now's the time to do some reshuffling and reorganizing. We have two and a half weeks left or so to get there with some peace, to find ourselves on Christmas, when Christmas actually arrives, when we celebrate the birth of Jesus, to be ready, to be ready for him to come into our hearts. So we gather at the table every week, week in and week out, because Jesus reminds us and tells us to, he instructs us to, because every week there's a new sorrow or a new joy. Every week there's a new chance to let go of something we need to let go of. Every week there's a grudge that we might need to let go of. Every week we may need to be forgiven for something. And so if you're coming to the table today in your long Christian walk without joy, perhaps this is your chance to come pray for some joy and to ask God to teach you once again to be joyful. If you are joyful, if you are experiencing it, this is a chance to come express it and to maybe do a little leap up in front of the altar. I don't know. No one will laugh. 
if, if you've never come to this table before, or if you've never come to Jesus before, this might be your chance to say, God, I don't know exactly what all this entails or what this is about, but I want, I want to be part of this. I want to be part of joy, this Advent preparation of joy. Whatever, whatever your prayer is on your heart today, I invite you forward with it to this table as you take the bread and dip it in the juice as a reminder that Jesus is with us today and that he's once again coming into the world. So the table is set and everybody here is welcome.